Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We've got some great articles today, so let's get started. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, at MessyNessieChic.com, they want you to meet the Italian grandmothers who are making the world's rarest pasta. Oh, (laughs) is it like ingredient wise or shape wise? Mostly shape and technique wise. And in case you ever want to get a conversation started or quirk some brows on your work computer, head over to Pasta Grannies on YouTube, (gasps) specifically YouTube. And they've got these beautiful videos where they're trying to document these very rare pasta types that only a few people know how to make and that aren't super widely known. For example, the ancient village of Sardinia, where the art of handmade pasta is practically a sacred ritual. There are a lot of techniques and different types of pasta that are braided, stretched, and crocheted using mesmerizing Whoa. bygone techniques. Wow. Some of the recipes include andarinos, made only in one Sardinian village, which includes delicate spirals twisted by hand and dried in the sun. It's a simple dough. You just use durum wheat flour, and then you twist them into spirals, and you roll little ropes of the dough over a finely ridged surface, and you get these beautiful connected kind of cascading shells. Mm. There's another one that might be the world's rarest and most intricate pasta variety, Filindu, which is a melodic name that means the threads of God. And if you look at pictures of it, you know how confectioners can take these smooth mats of chocolate and take like a blunt paint scraper and just kind of shave them into these spirals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So imagine the curls kind of uncurled a little bit, but they've got those striations in there. It's so beautiful. Wow. Apparently, only a few women can master this incredible procedure, which is passed down from mother to daughter and has been for over 300 years. And the dough has worked for a long time, quote, until the hand feels it. And that's the thing that makes this especially difficult. There's no precise indication that you're doing it right. It's the hand that understands by experience when it's time mm-hmm. to form the roll and pull it through both fingers and then divide it into lots of small filaments. I'm guessing it's kind of like saltwater taffy almost. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Jamie Oliver, the UK cook that encourages everyone to try new techniques, yeah. there's a link where he struggled with the dough for three minutes straight. So it's not easy to do. Sure. Yeah. And the process is so laborious that it's now reserved for the occasion of the annual pilgrimage to the sanctuary of San Francesco di Lula, a small village close to Nuoro. It's a sacred tradition to break the filindu, boil it with sheep broth, and then cover it with pecorino cheese and offer it to everyone that came to pay their respects to the saint. And so to prepare the amount of pasta for over about 1,500 pilgrims, it takes the handful of women who know the special technique over an entire month of work. Wow. And due to the dwindling number of people who know how to prepare filindu, the Sardinian nonne decided to spread the secret beyond the family and have even started organizing classes just to find people to keep the tradition alive. Well, that's really cool that it's getting preserved. I have to say, I'm on the fence a little bit about this and all kinds of stuff like this, because you're basically talking about 
people who have incredible artistic talent and they're sort of forced by economics and and social structures to channel that into pasta because they still have to like stay home and make food for their family like there's no opportunity for them to go out and make any other kind of art which (laughs) like it's like on the one hand it's really cool that they can still find an outlet to use their talents on the other hand i'm like it's kind of wasted wouldn't it be cool if they could make whatever they wanted instead of being forced to create their art only through pasta? Well, I don't think there's any forcing here. The way that it's framed in this article, at least, is a real labor of love, a preservation right. of tradition. But I mean, you know, if some of the Italian Michelin starred chefs were smart, they would bring him in as like guest chefs to raise its profile, you know, bring some interest back into it. Well, certainly it would be a lot better than spending money on like a really expensive thing with gold it's an eighteen thousand dollar burger or whatever nonsense that's true but you know power and wealth warp the mind who knows how that thought process works like they do like you do you know how it goes i mean honestly i almost wouldn't want to eat the pasta because it sounds so precious i'm pretty sure it's like an endangered species right right (laughs) anyways i should have had breakfast before i had this podcast (laughs) i know it was a little dodgy to open up with something that's delicious and and maybe you want to eat before visiting the article, but it has gorgeous pictures. It's got video of how it's being done. It's beautiful. I encourage you to look at it. You know, if you're into making pasta at home, you might be able to keep the tradition alive yourself. That's right. And if not, you can practice with Play-Doh. Like, there's nothing that says it has to be real food. (laughs) That's right. Get a little bit of that hand muscle memory in, and then you can try it with the dough. Right, right. Sounds like a plan. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from Gizmodo.com. It's titled Physicists Laser Cool Antimatter to Near Absolute Zero. Oh, all right. Yeah. For a little more than a week in July 2018, a team of physicists at CERN tried a new technique to slow down antimatter particles zipping around at breakneck speeds. These 10 days of observation were the culmination of 10 years of development in an international collaboration called Alpha, which oversaw the design and construction of a high powered laser. So, Antimatter is sort of a mirror of matter, as in it's the same particles, but they have opposite charges. So regular matter electrons have a negative charge, whereas antimatter positrons are positively charged. Okay. Then you've got positively charged protons and negatively charged antiprotons and so on. Mm-hmm. And antimatter and matter annihilate each other when they come into contact. But thankfully, the minuscule amounts produced at CERN pose no threat to us. They say. Or so they say. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But anti-hydrogen, first captured in 2011, is a prime candidate for such experimentation because it is the simplest anti-atom. Literally a positron orbiting an anti-proton, just as an electron orbits a proton in regular hydrogen. Hmm. Makoto Fujiwara, a particle physicist with Canada's Triumph Particle Accelerator team, said... Slowing down the motion of anti-atoms allows us to perform more precise measurements on its properties. You can imagine things moving fast are harder to see than things moving slowly, and the same thing happens in quantum physics. The more time you have to observe a certain property, the more precise your measurement. When trapped, the anti-hydrogen is moving about as fast as a top-speed Lamborghini, (laughs) and then the physicists use the bombardment technique called laser cooling to slow down the anti-atoms to about the speed of a cheetah, which is still quite fast. Yeah. (laughs) I love all of the metaphors here. They're like, we have to put this in terms you'll understand. So there's a Lamborghini and a cheetah. (laughs) Honestly, I thought it would be much faster than that. Yeah. But, you know, I appreciate the visual. So... (laughs) 
Down the proverbial road, Fujiwara and Momose have a range of hopes for further probing of antimatter. There's the issue of antimatter molecules and how they compare to the ones we see in our daily life. Mm -hmm. The Haisu Project, a Canadian collaboration with CERN, aims to construct an anti-atomic fountain with which the team would lob droves of anti-atoms into free space and see how they fall. Ooh. Which starts to get a little bit closer to what are we doing here, really. But <laughs> the researchers hope that questions about the universe's peculiarities that have gone long unanswered will finally be addressed. And when such structures get more complicated, things could get really interesting. You can imagine entire molecules of antimatter as opposed to individual particles and subatomic particles. But first things first, they have to get a grip on their physics. Yeah, but like if there's anti-molecules, you could also go in the more extreme direction. Like you could have an anti-person. Right? Like, you could you could create an anti-anything. Yeah, I think the issue is that they don't stay very long, like they degrade very quickly, mm. but I'm not a particle physicist, so <laughs> I don't really know. Right. I mean, honestly, it's kind of counterintuitive to me that you can shoot a laser at something to cool it down. Yeah. I would have thought that that just heats it up, but yep. I guess I don't know lasers, so. Well, I mean, the anti-us would have goatees. We know that. That's like. true. <laughs> uh, well, I already have kind of a goatee, so I'm halfway there. You're the anti-way. Where'd you do with the yes. real way? <laughs> <laughs> He's long gone. You just sport the facial hair. And for women, I think it's just bearing a midriff, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and always the eye patch. Like you've always yeah. got to have an eye yes. patch for the anti-you to know which one's yeah. the evil one. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Science solved. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from the BBC. It's called Six Things We Didn't Know About the Beatles. And to be clear, this is the Beatles, the band, not the bug. Got it. Okay. And it's a little bit of a Russian doll here because what we have is an article talking about a Radio 4 broadcast in the UK, which was itself discussing a book that came out last year called 1234 by Craig Brown. And, you know, now all these people are going to listen to a podcast discussing that article. And if some of the folks hearing this right now could write an email to a friend, then that friend could text another friend about the email. And we could just, like, keep adding layers until <laughs> we all fall into the sun. But anyway, the book itself is a very personal, behind-the-scenes look at the Beatles, especially in their younger days as they were just starting to become really famous, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the fun facts they share is that the childhood homes of both John Lennon and Paul McCartney are owned and maintained by the National Trust in England. Like, they're publicly owned. They're museums, basically. Oh. And, in fact, the person who bought McCartney's home and donated it to the trust was Yoko Ono in the early 2000s. Hey. Yeah, which means, I think, either Yoko thinks that Ringo and George's homes aren't as special, or whoever's currently living in them doesn't <laughs> want to sell. Like, they don't talk about those two, so I don't know where they are. But they do note that the houses have both gone through a fair number of renovations and then unrenovations to restore the style that they would have had when the Beatles were kids. But one of the completely original parts of Paul's house is the drain pipe along the back that Paul would use to sneak in and out of the house as a teenager. Hmm. He later used these same skills after he became famous and had to sneak around to avoid fans and paparazzi. So one of the more involved routes to get out of his girlfriend's house that they talk about was to climb out an attic window walk across the roof to the window of the next-door neighbor, climb in that window, which apparently the guy didn't mind, take an elevator <laughs> down to the basement where another young couple who lived there would escort him through their kitchen and garage to the outside. So, like, the whole neighborhood was in on it. And, <laughs> you know, how weird to be someone who just lives in a little flat in England 
and then occasionally one of the Beatles walks through. You know? (laughs) (laughs) There's another story about how after their very first concert in the U.S., they were invited to a reception at the British Embassy. But one of the guests, and they don't say whether they were British or American, but I'd have to assume American, mocked them for basically being something only teenage girls were interested in. And John Lennon got so mad, he stormed out of the party. And later that same evening, Ringo was mingling and chatting when someone snuck up with a pair of scissors and cut a chunk off his hair and ran off. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And the perpetrator was a mystery for about 40 years. But then in the early 2000s, a woman named Beverly Markowitz owned up to it. And she claims that she stole his hair not because she was a big fan who wanted a piece of it, but because her boyfriend had dragged her to the embassy party and she was bored and wanted to leave. But he wouldn't agree to go. So she decided to do something that would be like sure to get them kicked out. And it did. (laughs) So she still has the little lock of hair in a scrapbook. And my guess is she's waiting for Ringo to die. So it'll drive the price up. (laughs) Because while none of Ringo's hair has ever sold at auction, a lock of John Lennon's hair sold for no less than 35,000 pounds (gasps) a few years back. Wow. Yeah. Apparently, at the height of their fame, their hair was such a hot commodity that their manager would personally gather up the clippings whenever one of them got a haircut and incinerate them. (gasps) Wow. Oh, my gosh. John Lennon also once gave one of his teeth to his housekeeper because her daughter was a fan. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) Yeah. And that tooth was also sold at auction a while back for 19,000 pounds. Not as much as the hair, which is weird to me. Yeah. It feels like a tooth should be more. It seems more intimate, but at least you can stroke the hair and kind of like imagine what it might feel like on the head versus stroking right. the tooth. The tooth is a little doesn't... grosser. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the tooth story actually gets even weirder because the guy who bought the tooth is a dentist. And he has stated publicly that he believes John Lennon fathered several illegitimate children. And he's willing to join forces with those hypothetical people and have the tooth DNA tested to prove their case in exchange for a percentage of the inheritance that they would presumably sue for once they had established paternity. So he's just sort of putting this offer out there like, hey, if you think John Lennon was secretly your dad, come to me. And we'll split the money. <laughs> like, what do, do you think this guy, like, did he have this plan from the beginning? Or was he just being a dentist? I don't know what dentists like to collect. If they collect anything, it's probably teeth. Yeah. So, you know, like, he, he thought, oh, well, that's a really cool collector's item. And then he was like, what the hell am I going to do with this tooth? That's right. Well, and then... you're going to wait for genetic <laughs> cloning to get a little bit better so that you can auction such an item. Right. John Lennon. It scares me how real that could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Or it could have just been like a complex way to make it a business write-off. You know, if he's interested in teeth, that doesn't really count. But if he's like, no, I'm turning this into an investment. (laughs) Another fun fact is that in 1966, the band was taking a three-month vacation from touring. And Paul McCartney decided to try taking a road trip in disguise around Europe to see if he could live life as a normal person. His disguise consisted of a fake mustache, glasses, and slicking back his hair with Vaseline, which doesn't sound at all convincing, but apparently it worked 100% of the time. He was able to go around and have a great vacation, but he decided he didn't like being normal after all when he was refused entry into a swanky nightclub in France. So he left and came back again without the disguise, and he got in. Wow. (laughs) You know, a Euro trash disguise only goes so far in Europe, right? Yes, exactly. If you have a mustache, sunglasses, and you're greasing your hair back. You just look like everybody else. You're not that cool. That's right. That's right. (laughs) 
But there's a bunch of other stories in here. And I'll be honest, I'm not actually a huge fan of the Beatles. Like, they're fine. But this article did make me think about reading the book because the stories are all just so charming. You know, they mm-hmm. really were kids. And it's not yeah. something you think about necessarily. Like, oh, they're geniuses and ahead of their time. It's like, well, yeah, but they were also just teenagers doing mm-hmm. teenager stuff. Giving teeth to people, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. Well, good news, everyone. Newatlas.com is reporting that a synthetic organism has undergone cell division in a breakthrough study. (gasps) Wait, like we made it and it's alive. Yeah, researchers have created a synthetic single-celled organism that can divide properly. And this is the first time it's ever happened. It can divide and grow like a regular cell. And they're hoping that this breakthrough could lead to designer cells that can produce useful chemicals on demand or treat disease from inside the body. Mm. (laughs) Nothing dystopian about that. We're just going to inject this into you (laughs) and it's going to take over your body. It's from a team that created the first cell with a synthetic genome, which they dubbed JCV1 Syn (laughs) 1.0. And what they were trying to do with 3.0 was make a version that would have the organism be as simple as possible. And so with only 473 genes, it was the simplest living cell ever known. By comparison, an E. coli bacterium has over 4,000 genes. But even that was too simple because the cells were not that effective at dividing. You've only got 473 genes. So instead of uniform shapes and sizes, some of them would form filaments, others wouldn't fully separate. So for this newest version, which is JCVI Syn 3A, the team added 19 genes back into the cell, including seven that are required for regular cell division. And sure enough, the new variant was able to divide properly into uniform orbs. So they're thinking the project can help scientists better understand the process of cell division, and it joins a few other breakthroughs in synthetic and semi-synthetic organisms in recent years. In 2012, a team produced the first synthetic cell membrane, and in 2017, scientists engineered extra DNA letters into the genetic code of a semi-synthetic organism, and a few months later, it produced an entirely novel protein. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess you have to. You have to pursue these things. You can't not advance science. Yes, but hearing the phrase of entirely novel is triggering after everything that we've been through with coronavirus. I know a couple other things that have been novel in my lifetime. I don't even even read books anymore. I'm just, I got to avoid the word novel at all costs. (laughs) So in the longer run, they're hoping this kind of work can be a major step towards being able to engineer synthetic cells that can perform specific tasks on demand programming them only with what they want them to do. So we're thinking maybe they can make chemicals for food or even fuels and even act like tiny drug factories inside the body to treat diseases. But of course, there's still more work to be done. After all, of the seven cell division involved genes used in the organism, the team only knows what two of them actually do. So investigating the other fives are going to be the next steps. (laughs) I mean, if there's anything we know that a living cell doesn't do is go haywire and... (laughs) Right, go off on its own evolution. Yeah, exactly. As the great philosopher Jeff Goldblum once noted, (laughs) life uh, finds a way. That's right. (laughs) I just feel like we're going to have a lot of movies that were previously fiction become historical biopics. Right. Yep, right. Maybe a couple Marvel movies here and there. You know, I don't know. Who knows? You know, we've been talking about mutants for a long time. This might be some of the essential scientific step we need to induce mutanthood into yeah. ourselves. And Okay, I changed my mind. Give it to me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> He's on board. Exactly. Next link. 
Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from atlasobscura.com, and it's titled The Clever Architectural Feature That Makes Life on Bermuda Possible. Oh. So in 1609, the flagship of the Virginia company Sea Venture was blown miserably off course by a brutal summer hurricane that wrecked the ship near a tiny island some 700 miles off the Virginia coast. Fortunately, no lives were lost, but unfortunately, the island did not offer a drop of fresh water. And today, that island is among the most densely populated countries on Earth, and it's still without a permanent body of fresh water. So, Bermudians are some of the most water-conscious people in the Western world, and this consciousness is built into their homes. The roof of each home is mandated by law to catch and redirect rain into underground cisterns that serve as islanders' primary source of fresh water. While initially conceived as a means of survival, these elegant roofs have become an aesthetic landmark. Gildan Gilbert, a born and raised Bermudian, says architecturally, Bermuda hasn't really changed. It's unlikely that you'd see any modern design in island architecture, which I think is actually a good thing. So Gilbert and his wife left Bermuda 24 years ago, but he took the roof with him. And today he runs a (laughs) construction company that exports the concept throughout the Caribbean. He says Bermuda's roofs last for generations. The house I grew up in was 95 years old, still had the original roof. The house next door was 200 years old, still had the original roof. And in fact, the Carter House, named after one of the shipwrecked sailors from 1609, was built in the 1680s and still has the original roof. So what these roofs look like, and the article has pictures, they're really lovely. They're basically these square, almost sort of ziggurat, pyramid-looking things that are very blocky Hmm. with a little circular orb at the very top. So the rain kind of flows down them in a little stepwise pattern. Hmm. And Bermuda is a limestone island, so for most of the houses, the stone that's unearthed to make room for the foundation and mandatory water tank becomes the slabs that form the actual roof. The sloping slabs then catch, slow, and redirect rain through several pipes that meet in the underground tank. Joffrey Smith, who's an environmental engineer with the government of Bermuda, says, When it's heavy rain, you actually hear it in the various downpipes in the walls. It's actually a nice sound. He says that regulations demand that 80% of each roof be designated for rain catch and that for every 10 square feet of roof, the tank below must hold 100 gallons of water. So the roofs also have side benefits. According to Gilbert, the limestone is naturally cooling, relieving most families of the need for central air conditioning. Mm. So long as there are no overhangs or gaps between the coated slabs, the inch-thick roofs are also virtually hurricane-proof. University of Rochester historian Michael Jarvis says, In rare cases, the whole stone roof will have been lifted up and shifted a foot or two, but it's still solid. Wow. Yeah, they're really, really striking to look at. They look very, very dense and like they might be impractical, but apparently they work really well and they're very sturdy. So between the roofs, pipes, and tanks, the uniquely Bermudian relationship to water trickles into day-to-day life. A hydrogeologist, Sean Lavis, grew up in the UK but has acclimated to the centrality of rainfall in island living. He says islanders refer to prolonged bouts of precipitation as tank rain or a tank filler, and the water pressure isn't quite the same as back home, he says, and baths are more of a rarity, and they're probably a quarterly event if there's been a good rain, but it's somewhat frowned upon. Hmm. Gilbert says Bermudian kids are always taught about conservation and the Bermuda roofs from a young age, from taking short showers to turning off the water while brushing your teeth and, in rough times, flushing toilets as little as possible. He says, we were raised to be cognizant of how much water was in the tank. We had to make it last. In the 20th century, the growth of the tourism industry meant the arrival of hordes of water gluttonous mainlanders, mostly Americans. Uh. And (laughs) around then, according to Jarvis, the island developed its first desalination plants, which used reverse osmosis to make fresh water. 
Other backup sources were identified throughout the century, including groundwater lenses, which is fresh water that floats on top of denser salt water, Ooh. as well as water mains and trucks to bring water to empty tanked families. The island now fills all its water needs consistently, but according to Smith, rain catch from Bermuda roofs is still far and away the largest source. As Jarvis says, Bermudian families strive for self-sufficiency. To need government water is almost like surrendering, <laughs> like you lost the fight. <laughs> well, I mean, it, we're probably all going to be in the same boat in the next century or so. So obviously we need to pay attention and learn what they know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, after the Texas storm and no water and mm -hmm. no power and all that, I was like, oh, where is the nearest river? Yeah. I mean, I guess. <laughs> well, and we've got limestone <laughs> here. Lake, we but... could absolutely oh. make limestone roofs here. We've got all sorts of limestone under the ground. Yeah, That's but perfect. you have to like believe in science for all of those projects to go through. <laughs> <laughs> tough That's selling true. Texas. I still, oh, well. I think if you were the first person on your block with a white ziggurat roof, like, I think you could start a trend. I think it would be really cool. Yeah. I mean, they look very trendy and they could certainly go on some schnitzy celebrity houses. I don't know what schnitzy even means, but it just felt <laughs> like the right word. <laughs> Seems right. Seems right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, Harry Baker at Live Science asks the question, how long would it take to walk around the moon? And I'll be totally honest, I almost skipped this article because it's exactly the kind of meaningless hypothetical that my son <laughs> is always asking me. And my instinct is just to scream, it doesn't matter, eat your food. But like, <laughs> there was actually some interesting science that went into the answer, so it won me over. Nice. So the straightforward path here is, of course, how fast can you walk on the moon? How big is the circumference? Multiply, and there's your answer, right? Mm -hmm. And we do have lots of footage of the Apollo astronauts bouncing along the moon's surface from which we could estimate their top speed. But in 2014, NASA actually published a study in the Journal of Experimental Biology showing that a modern astronaut could probably walk a lot faster than the Apollo astronauts did. They said the biggest hindrance to movement on the moon was not, in fact, the one-sixth gravity, but rather the design of the spacesuit. Hmm. So what they did was they took eight participants, only three of whom were trained astronauts, and made them walk on a treadmill inside the famous DC-9 jet, also known as the Vomit Comet, <laughs> which, if you're not familiar, it simulates weightlessness for about 20 seconds at a time by flying very high and then diving down again and again, which, side note, means they basically combined two of OK Go's most famous music videos. Like, they had the treadmill one, and they had the Vomit Comet one, and I think it's yes. reasonable to think maybe somebody at NASA is a fan and got the idea to combine them. But anyway. <laughs> the end result was that by trying out different techniques, the participants were able to walk best when they were able to freely and aggressively swing their arms, because this pendulum motion created an extra bit of downward force, and with the right arm swinging motion, they were able to walk an average of 3.1 miles per hour, which is about twice as fast as the Apollo astronauts were able to move. Okay. And that's still slower than on Earth, where most people average about four and a half miles per hour. But NASA says that modern suit design would greatly enhance the astronauts' ability to move around, especially now that they know the arms are key. So if you were to walk at this hypothetical top speed nonstop, you could get around the entire moon in about 91 days. Of course, you can't walk nonstop. You have to eat and sleep. And having come this far, the article is going to see the question through to the end, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. they, they asked Aidan Cowley, a scientific advisor at the European Space Agency, what the details of such a journey would look like. And he replied, quote, I think logistically it could be done, but it would be a very strange mission to support. <laughs> <laughs> he said, first, of course, you have to think about all the food and water and oxygen tanks you would need. And even in one-sixth gravity, it would be too much weight to carry in your backpack. 
so you'd need a rover to travel alongside you, which could have the added benefit of serving as a shelter to sleep in. He Hmm. said there are actually several of these portable mini bases in the design stages right now for when we do start exploring the moon more thoroughly. So that part's actually pretty feasible. Mm -hmm. Callie also says you'd have to take terrain into account because some of the craters on the moon are several miles deep. So the ideal path would actually meander around those instead of going in a straight line. He also notes that while the suit and the rover should theoretically protect you from the cold temperatures on the dark side of the moon, we don't actually know yet how those temperatures affect the texture of the regolith or the lunar soil. So it's possible that any kind of motion would be much harder on the dark side of the moon. We've never Mm -hmm. tried to move over there, so we don't know. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have to consider the solar radiation. So Mm -hmm. far, we've always sent astronauts to the moon during times that avoid periods of high solar activity. But if you were on the surface for any extended period of time, you're pretty much guaranteed to be exposed, Mm -hmm. which means you might get cancer and die before you ever make it back. Okay. Yeah. He also claims that even the fittest, most Olympic-level athlete would only be able to manage about four hours of walking a day in these conditions. So all in all, you're looking at about a year and a half to walk around the entire moon, assuming you don't die. Yeah, which (laughs) you go from 91 days to a year and a half. That's a pretty big leap. So Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why do we do space? Space sucks. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) Well, you know, space is awesome. You just don't want to walk it. Like, you don't walk in L.A., you don't walk in space. that's true. Yeah, but then you say, like, you don't walk to the top of Everest, but people are stupid and do that. So, you know, I feel like this is research that someone's going to use. Yeah. Yeah, although they said that the arms are important to this. And what I'm now imagining is skipping astronauts. Just, like, (laughs) going across the entire moon. And, I mean, I've always said that skipping of all the locomotion forms has the highest joy to velocity ratio. So (laughs) I think it makes sense. If you're going to do it, you might as well have fun with it. For sure. That's right. (laughs) Callie does note that it's possible we'll come up with some technological advances that would make the whole thing work. He said, quote, you'd never get an agency to support anything like this. But if some crazy billionaire wants to try it, maybe they can pull it off, which feels like goading. It does. The whole thing reads as a dare to me where it's like, yeah, "Yeah, you wouldn't be able to do this. And if you did, it would take forever. And I know that someone who wants to take over and name a city Starbase in this state is just raring to go and just needs any excuse to make a mech suit so they can power walk across (laughs) the whole moon. Well, and Cowley knows that, and he's like, hey, man, go. Go see if we do it. Let's see. Come on. Yeah, we could use the data. I, mean, I, I do like the idea of taking one of those Boston Dynamics little robots, and then yes. it's like you have you have a moon horse at that point. <gasps> That'd be and fantastic. Just, yeah. They're oh. so charming, aren't they? I mean, I don't think there has been any other like robotic entity, if we can even call them that, that has engendered as much like cooing and i find them adorable when they dance you don't notice they're taking you over (laughs) (laughs) next link next Next link. link Well, speaking about adorable, terrifying things, uh, Business Insider (laughs) reports that bear cubs in California are developing an unexplained illness that makes them friendly and not afraid of people. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's good. Maybe. It is good, but it's also not great. Um, (laughs) So some black bear cubs in particular in California have been exhibiting uncharacteristic, overly friendly dog-like behaviors, which (gasps) makes my heart like all pitter-patter. But the California Department of Fish and Wildlife said on Wednesday that last month it picked up a small female black bear with this kind of behavior from Pollock Pines, which is east of Sacramento. 
And the young bear was underweight. It had moved into a residential backyard and was comfortable around people picking up apples and eating them in front of the residents on their patio. But the bear did not respond to people yelling or clapping. And at one point, Uh. it jumped into a housekeeper's open car trunk. Brandon Monk, a wildlife veterinarian with the department, told Cebus Sacramento that this was not normal behavior and this is a red flag. Mm. Um, So the phenomenon was first identified in 2014. Like other bears picked up before her, the small bear in Pollock Pines displayed a head tilt and walked oddly. In 2019, a snowboarder captured video of a bear with this kind of behavior. It's titled, Bear Climbs on Snowboard for a Ride at North Star. And it looks adorable. He's like hugging the leg. (laughs) I know, but here's the sad part. Scientists have found that this behavior is linked to encephalitis Mm. or inflammation in the brain. But it's still not clear what's causing the encephalitis. And five new viruses have been identified in these sick bears, but they don't know whether they're necessarily linked to these symptoms. So far, Mm. the viruses don't appear to be a risk to humans, but in the past few years, four bears with these symptoms have been brought to authorities. One bear was even spotted in Humboldt County, a 366-mile drive from Lake Tahoe, and some have been seen (laughs) on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe. That makes it sound like the bear drove. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? And sadly, bears with this neurological condition cannot survive in the wild, and Mm. some, like the young black bear who hugged the snowboarder, have been placed in wildlife care facilities and zoos. However, the small bear picked up in Pollock Pines was euthanized, which is such a bummer. So, you know, we still don't really know about it. The fact that this is all concentrated kind of in the West Coast makes me hope that maybe they're just eating a bunch of cannabis and just kind of getting real sweet and cuddly. But It's like cocaine bear, but he only had a little. (laughs) (laughs) They were just kind of fuzzy and a little doofy or whatever. (laughs) But the fact that they're linking this to brain injuries and viruses, Mm -hmm. try not to for that viral video for the lulls or whatever. Yeah, I gotta say, this is actually a really bad harbinger because there's another disease that does that called toxoplasmosis. And what it does is it Mm. makes mice not afraid of cats. Yeah. And the reason the virus does that is so that it can spread to the cats. Yep. So, like, if the bears are suddenly not afraid of us, that says to me, the virus wants to be in us. So you got to stay away from those bears, (laughs) hardcore. Yeah, I mean, and it's going to be a hard sell on that, too, because as far as we can tell from the outside, these bears just want to chill. No! I mean, a hug? Come on. Yeah. (sighs) Heavy side. Next link. Next Next link. link. Speaking of animals that just want to hang out, (laughs) this article comes to us from TheGuardian.com, and it's titled, U.S. Man Returns from Swift Shopping Trip to Find 15,000 Bees (gasps) in His Car. What? Yeah. So, a man who went shopping in New Mexico returned to a car filled with 15,000 honeybees who had apparently got in through an open window while he spent 10 minutes buying groceries. (laughs) He just crashed in, huh? Yeah. And astonishingly, the man who was not named in the New York Times report detailing his unexpected travel companions did not notice the sudden presence of the giant swarm of buzzing insects on his vehicle's back seat until he was driving away. No. He's like driving and 15,000 bees like tap him on the shoulder on the highway? Oh my God. (laughs) Like they conglomerate into a body. Right, right, right. I I know bees are small in individual number. 15,000. How do you not notice that? That's too many bees. 
Yeah. So there is there is a photo on no. this article, and it is ridiculous. <laughs> like they're in the back seat, and they all just swarmed into the crack in the window. Like I don't know what the heck. But uh, anyway, so <laughs> Jesse Johnson, an off-duty firefighter and paramedic whose hobby is beekeeping, said of the man's reaction in an interview with the paper. <gasps> then he turned back and looked and was like. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. I don't think cow was the word he used, but I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> and then he called 911 because he didn't know what to do. <laughs> so would I. That Same. seems like a perfectly reasonable yeah. response. Oh, yeah. my God. I mean, that's got to be one of the more interesting calls you get as a 911 <laughs> operator. You know, like. Right. That's where like you just. cars full of bees all of a sudden. You assume that guy's high. You're like, okay, we need a paramedic yeah. for the guy who's taken too many fuzzy drugs because right. there's no way there's 15,000 bees in the back of his car. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is in New Mexico, right? The home of fictional Breaking Bad. So I'm sure yeah. that the dispatcher was like, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure there are, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Johnson and his fellow firefighters helped the man remove the bees and put them in an empty hive box. So luckily, it was a fine ending to the situation. He said the bees were likely swarming with a queen and looking for a new home. which does make them more docile and easier to handle as they're not defending their turf. Mm. And the whole incident passed largely without injury, but not entirely. One guy got stung on the lip and we made fun of him the next morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I had no idea that bees would all swarm that aggressively with a queen because that does seem like the most likely explanation. Right. But um, It's moving day. Like Mm -hmm. they just packed up and they all coordinated together, which is cool. Like bees can coordinate to that degree, which is awesome, but they picked the wrong place, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder if, if you catch a bee swarm in the middle of a move, does it just look like one mass like this because the photo is horrifying it's terrifying (laughs) and i'm just imagining them moving through the air as one gigantic bee cloud like the schools of fish in finding nemo they arrange themselves and give you messages like hey where's the nearest bee hotel oh that way cool thanks like yeah exactly i mean it just walked up to the car formed a latch with its arm and then unlocked the door and then just got in that's how it happens speaking of jurassic park they they can open doors now (laughs) life finds way man it always finds a way (laughs) exactly next link next Next link link. all right well this one comes from nature.com it's a little bit of a quickie it's called first known gene transfer from plant to insect identified (gasps) Hmm. so we talked before i think a couple months ago about the idea of evolution being partly driven by bits of viral dna getting injected into our genome right you guys remember that Mm mm-hmm Well, this is sort of the same idea, except this time they've proven that a particular gene in an insect was originally a piece of plant DNA. So the insect in question is Bamesia tabachi, also known as the whitefly, which is one of the most destructive pests in the agricultural world. It drains the sap from hundreds of different types of plants, and it also excretes a sticky substance called honeydew that serves as a breeding ground for mold even after it leaves. As if that weren't enough, they're also a vector from more than 100 pathogenic plant viruses. So these things are absolutely destructive. Nobody wants them around. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons whiteflies are so powerful is that they're immune to a type of toxin called phenolic glycosides, which are produced by a number of different plants as a defensive mechanism against pests. So the research team, led by Yojun Zhang at the Chinese Academy of Agricultural Sciences, had theorized that the gene that allows them to neutralize the toxin might have been pilfered from a bacteria or virus, since that's a relatively common thing. 
But when they located the gene, they found that it was actually really clearly derived from the original plant gene that allows those plants to make the toxin in the first place. Hmm. How exactly they knew this isn't really explained, but I guess if they can look at a gene and know that it came from a microbe, they can also look at a gene and know that it came from a plant. Then they did even more genetic magic and modified some tomato plants to produce a double-stranded RNA molecule that would shut down the expression of that gene in the white flies that ate it. And sure Mm. enough, the white flies that ate those Dr. Tomato plants all died. Mm. So, you know, the exciting thing here is that this is another step in the development of targeted pesticide strategies that don't involve toxins themselves and don't affect either human consumption or beneficial insects like pollinators. Mm -hmm. As for how the white fly managed to swipe a plant gene, that's still completely unclear. Study co-author Ted Turlings noted that it's actually possible the gene did come from a virus and that the virus just swiped it from a plant itself in the first place. So it sort of passed it along. Mm. He also said that while this is the first example we've ever found, it's entirely possible that gene transfers between plants and animals are common. And we'll find more examples in the future as we sequence more genomes and continue to analyze the ones we have. Mm -hmm. And I guess they've done enough studying on the human genome at this point to know for sure that none of our genes came from plants. But I think it would be really cool to find out that, like, we have secret genes for photosynthesis or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I that seems yes. like a useful thing. I would really enjoy that. Even though I never go outside, right. <laughs> I would enjoy that. You're missing out on some quality random gene combos, buddy. That's but, right. You mm-hmm. want to become a mutant, you're going to have to expose yourself mm-hmm. to other forms of life. Oh. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Dang. <laughs> oh, well. all right well that is all we have time for today we're so glad you've joined us some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include why animals don't get lost the elite controllers who can naturally suppress hiv and the cesspool of the internet is found in a village in north holland so all that and more can be found on daminteresting.com If you like the podcast and appreciate our ad-free quality, you can support us at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. You can also email us with any feedback you have at feedback at di.show. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 